John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, right? First day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark, so the sun hadn't fully come up, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran to Simon Peter, know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, the other disciple, by the way, was John, and they were going to the tomb, so they both ran together, John, John throws this in, and the other disciple, who shall remain nameless, outran Peter to the tomb. There's a little competition everywhere, right? And stooping down, he looked in and saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. John just kind of looked from the outside, then Simon Peter, who lost the race, following him, and went into the tomb, and when he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying in the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself, Jesus folded up his garments and just put them there. Nice. We have a God of order, by the way. Folded them up. And the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scriptures that he must rise again from the dead. For as yet they didn't know that he must rise again. Look over in the same chapter, 19th verse, it was the same day still. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled together for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. He didn't come through the door, he just appeared and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, which of course were pierced by nails and a sword. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Let's pray again. Lord, we ask your spirit that is present among us to illuminate and magnify your word that we would hear, and Lord, we would respond to whatever your spirit speaks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Three days earlier, it was total despair. It was total darkness. It was total distraught emotions. Their master, their savior, their leader, their teacher, everything they believed in seemed ended. He was dead. I mean, they, they watched a crucifixion. I've never seen a crucifixion in person. I don't ever want to see one. And sadly, in our time, some of them are rehappening again in the Middle East. Horrific, barbaric. But three days later, at first they were confused, but by the end of the day, they were glad and rejoicing. Because Jesus, as the scriptures had foretold, had defeated death and defeated the grave. Now this story, though, it started long before that three days earlier. This story started long, long before that time. And this morning, I want to take a few minutes just to go through um, what took place leading up to this. We're looking at the story from the end. We're, we're coming, we're basically taking the book and going to the very last chapter and reading the end, the amazing end, and saying, wow, this is amazing. But the story started well before. And if you're here this morning, 
If you go back to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it says in Genesis chapter 22, then he said, take your son, your only son Isaac. Who is this? It's a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham, God called, and he had a son named Isaac, and he said, take your son, who he'd waited a long time to ever have a son, take your son and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, I will tell you. You know where Abraham took Isaac? That mountain would someday be the city of Jerusalem. Mount Moriah is today Jerusalem. It wasn't called Jerusalem then, but he took his son up to Jerusalem to be killed. But God really wasn't going to kill Isaac. It was a picture. It was a what the Bible calls a foreshadow. And it's also in the same chapter, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb. Because Isaac said, We're, we, we got the wood, we got the fire, we got the altar. Who's going to be the sacrifice? And God says, I have a sacrifice. I have a lamb prepared. And if you know the rest of the story, there was a ram caught in the thicket. And Isaac was not sacrificed. He was just a picture of a father giving his son. But the lamb was prepared long before. That was, by the way, about 1,900 years before Jesus went to Jerusalem. 1,900 years before Jesus went to Jerusalem. Then, in the book of Exodus, we have another man that comes on the scene. His name is Moses. You've all heard of him too, right? Last night I saw the Ten Commandments were on TV. He didn't look like Charlton Heston, no matter what you might think. <laughs> we're pretty sure of that. And by the way, Charlton Heston does not look Egyptian or uh, Hebrew to me. But anyway, that's... Jesus comes to Jerusalem about 1,500 years later, after this is instituted and given to Israel. Israel's going to be delivered from the land of Egypt, and God tells Moses that each family has to take a lamb without blemish, and that the whole assembly of the congregation is to kill the lamb at twilight. The whole assembly gathers together, and this is in uh, Exodus chapter 12, and here we see another lamb that has been foreshadowed of the lamb to come. Then in Psalm chapter 22, we have another man that comes on the scene. His name is King David. Like Abraham, he was a shepherd. Like Moses, he was a shepherd. David, before he was a king, was a shepherd. Jesus is the what? Great shepherd. You think that these things are all coincidence? Or that God has lined it all up in just the right order? And it says here in Psalm 22, and this is a prophecy, a messianic prophecy, speaking of the Christ that would come, he said, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They've pierced my hands. they pierced my feet. They stare at me. For my garments, they cast lots. All of this would happen to Jesus. The Roman soldiers would do the very things that Psalm 22 says. And by the way, crucifixion as a form of execution did not exist when David wrote this. It was not a form at that time to stretch out the hands and stretch out the feet. But God said, this is how my son, the spotless lamb of God, will lay down his life. That's about a thousand years before Jesus comes to Jerusalem. 
that about 700 years before Jesus comes to Jerusalem, a man by the name of Isaiah, perhaps the greatest prophet in all the scriptures up until John the Baptist, and then, of course, Jesus exceeds them all, more than a prophet. But he writes in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth, and he was led as what? A lamb to the slaughter. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about the fact that Jesus arrived at Jerusalem when? Passover week. Right at the start of Passover week. And actually the day he entered when they were shouting, Hosanna, they wanted a Savior, but they wanted a political Savior, not a Savior for their sin. When he entered the city, he entered on Lamb Selection Day. And like the required lambs for each household, he would be inspected over the next four days before the lambs and he himself would be killed. He revealed later in the week in the Passover meal, there with the disciples, that the body and the blood were pictures of him. That all those years they had been going to Passovers as children, they never recognized that he himself was exactly what they were looking at in type. But the story of God's Lamb was being written centuries before that climatic week. You know, people love a great story, right? That's why there's Hollywood. And all the production of books and movies and all kinds of things, books on CD, people love a great story. Some prefer it in a book form. Some in a movie. Some say it is never as good as the book. And they mean never as good as the book, right? You will disappoint some people every time a book is made into a movie. There are true stories. There are fictional stories. They can either be written or told or portrayed in such a way that they seem to come to life. You can, in your mind, seem to step into the scene and be transported some specific time and place just by reading or absorbing a story. Some stories are historic, right? History. Some are contemporary. They're, they're taking place in our time. Some are futuristic. You know, you've seen the popularity of Star Wars. It's a story, but it's futuristic. It's not going to happen, despite some people's imagination, but those things capture the imagination. Some are sad, some are tragic, some are frustrating almost throughout the entire movie, but invariably end in what? Triumph. It's a triumphant end. All great stories have a central theme or a premise. If there is one central theme or premise found in the page of Scripture, it is this one word, salvation. From Genesis to Revelation. In a single sentence, it it might be this. The world needs a Savior, and God will send him. The world needs a Savior, and God will send him. This was the proclamation, what? At Jesus' birth, right? Emmanuel. God with us. And his name shall be what? Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. This was the proclamation at his birth. This was the central message of Jesus. The famous chapter, John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came at night. I call him Nick at night. Right? Because 
Nicodemus came at night. And if you went by his shortened name. So Nick at night comes. Jesus says, I know you didn't want anyone to see you come. And he says a couple of things. But one, he says, you must be born again. That's where the term born again, Jesus coined it. If everyone asks you, you Christians came up with it. Well, no, we didn't. Jesus did. But later in the 16th verse, he said these words, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus in the third chapter of John. That's the central message of all of Jesus' ministry, that God so loved the world because the world needed a savior. The Bible is, among other things, among other pertinent things, because it's many other things that we don't have time to discuss, but it is a collection of true stories that make up one central story. That makes sense? It's a collection of many stories that make up one story. The world's greatest need and God's promise to live her. All of it maps back to that central premise. The world has a great need and God has sent the deliverer. We have, if you're holding a Bible, my hand's touching mine right here. If you're holding a Bible, you have in your hands 66 books or letters that comprise one book. Written at, by at least 39, there's debate whether it's 39 or 40 authors, but they have one author. I would say it this way, 39 to 40 writers and one author. Written in one part of the world. The whole Bible was written in one part of the world. And by the way, it was not written in Europe. It was not written in America. Oh, the Christianity, that's the American religion. No, it was written in the Middle East. In one part of the world, and yet it was written in one part of the world, and yet it transcends every culture, every language, and every ethnicity. The body of Christ is the most diverse organization on planet Earth, bar none. Africa, Asia, Europe, South America, Central America, Australia, Pacific Islanders, everywhere in the world, Jesus has saved souls on every single place you can think of in every ethnicity and language. It's written over a period of 2,000 years, some well before Christ, some of those years after he came, but the majority was written before Christ had came to the earth. The Old Testament, the Tanakh in the Hebrew, Genesis through Malachi, was all written before he had come. The last book was written 400 years before he came. And yet its antiquity still speaks to every period of time. It still speaks to modern man as well as it did to the ancient times, and it will speak for all eternity. Many stories have been written, fashioned, and portrayed, either his historic hindsight or his fiction. This story, though, was foretold in numerous ways and then lived out by Jesus Christ in a way that both completed and exceeded everything that had been written or understood in advance. Does that make sense? In other words, Jesus exceeded what was understood about the Messiah to come. He exceeded it all. God authored this story. God sent this story. God fulfilled this story. It's a story that is history. No doubt it's history. But it's not just history. It's prophecy. It's heartbreaking, but it's also heart-lifting. It's complex, and yet it's simple enough that these little kids up here 
can understand it when explained to them. Jesus said you didn't even have to become like a little child to receive him. This is not a story just to know. This is not a story just to understand intellectually. This is not a story even to appreciate. It's not even a story just to be amazed by. It's a story to be changed by. No, this story has been told and preserved by God. By the way, the world has assaulted this story for centuries. But it's been preserved by God through the ages that we who would believe and know the Savior that we'd know the sacrificial lamb, that we'd know the risen king, and his life in us would transform us. This is who the whole story centers around, Jesus. And if you saw the title, it's a couple slides back now. If you're taking notes, I've titled it today, The Greatest Story Ever Fulfilled. Not told, fulfilled. I'm going to look at three things just briefly with you this morning. The first, I'd call before. Before, during, and after. When you look at this story from the total perspective that we can now look back, because scriptures have been completed. When the book of Revelation was done and all the scriptures are put together, we have the completed story, and we can look and see from God's vantage point how this all came together. But before... What do I mean by that? The story of the world's need and God's chosen means of salvation is a story that, in a sense, we can't actually comprehend it. Because it happened long before it happened. Let me say that again. What do you mean? The story of God's redemption happened before it happened. Because God sits outside of time. In Revelation 13, 8... It's, it refers to Jesus, and listen to the words of this verse. It says, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Well, that's well before 2,000 years ago. Jesus was slain with the foundation of the world. When the world was founded, God already had this completed in mind. By the way, whatever God promises will happen as if it's already happened. You and I promise something. We can hardly deliver getting the milk home right? Oh, I forgot again, you know? But God delivers whatever he promises. And notice the name that refers to Christ in Revelation 13, 8, the lamb slain. The lamb. Why is that so important? We looked at these, these foreshadowings of the coming lamb. It's true that everyone will someday bow before Jesus as what? King of kings and Lord of lords. When you meet Jesus, everyone will bow before Jesus, those that reject him and those that receive him. Everyone will bow before him as king of kings and lord of lords. That's true. But long before time, before the world, God said the world needed what? A lamb. A lamb. Why a lamb? Well, not a king. Israel longed for, uh, when, when they shouted as he entered Passover week, they longed for a king that would rule and take the place of those really bad Roman emperors. No, before the foundation of the world, a lamb was needed, and a lamb was prepared. Long before there was an animal sacrifice, well before there was animal sacrifice, or the need for it after original sin. Remember Adam, after Adam and Eve's sin, God clothed them with the skins of animals. 
They tried to use fig leaves, which is a type of, of false religion. People have been making fig leaf religions ever since. God says that fig leaf religion will never cover you. You need the blood, the shed blood. Without the remission of sin, blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So before these animal sacrifices were ever instituted, before the instructions and the special instructions that were given in the law, God had already prepared a lamb. Long before there was that first Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12 that we looked at, and that required meal, God had prepared his lamb. Abraham knew God would prepare and provide for himself, but even Abraham didn't understand what it all meant. Would you agree with that? There's plenty of times where Abraham and Sarah is like, what is God doing? They didn't get it. They didn't see the full picture. And by the way, you and I don't see the full picture of anything either. We see enough to say yes. We say enough to have faith that's rock solid but we can't see all the things that God has done long before time and space. Moses per perhaps connected some of the dots, but no doubt he wasn't able to connect all of them. David knew a suffering Savior was coming. He knew a suffering Savior was coming because he wrote it as the Holy Spirit gave him in Psalm 22. He knew this was coming, but he couldn't understand who was this that was going to shed his blood. What does all this mean, pierced hands and pierced feet? Holy Spirit, why did you give me that? The Spirit revealed to Isaiah that a lamb was coming. But who was this lamb, and when would he appear? Isaiah didn't know exactly how this was going to happen. And by the way, Satan also knew the lamb was coming. Did you know that? Oh, he's known. People that don't believe in Satan, Satan loves that they don't believe in him. I don't believe in Jesus. He loves that too. But he knew the lamb was coming. Satan was well aware. And he did everything he could to stop it from happening. Satan has no more power, though, to stop the plan on God than you or I do. <laughs> Let me say that one more time. Satan has no more power to stop the plan of God than you or I do. And since you and I have no power to stop the plan of God, Satan doesn't either. He fools people into thinking he can stop things. He can't. I love what Paul wrote to the Roman church. You'll soon crush Satan underfoot. Well, that's an, you want to get an encouraging letter? That's an encouraging letter, by the way. But he couldn't do it. Satan's power versus yours and mine. And Satan's a lot more powerful in the sense of raw power that he was given at creation with. He has a lot more power than you and I, but not when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But his raw power, yeah, it might be... Uh, like the power we have compared to an ant, but then Satan's power compared to God to stop the will of God, it would be like us compared to the sun. You would get nowhere near the sun before you'd be vaporized, right? Satan will be vaporized by God. And by the way, every attempt that he ever had to stop the plan of God has already been vaporized by God. About 4,000 years after the fall that took place in the garden, is when Jesus entered into humanity. About 4,000 years after the garden, Jesus walked, well, he rides in on the foal of a donkey that very Passover week. About 33 years earlier, he entered into humanity. And the story would be no longer with the entrance of Jesus into the world, first with his birth, it would no longer be types, it would no longer be shadows, it would no longer be just prophecy. No, 
as the scriptures say in John chapter 1, verse 14, when Jesus entered in humanity 4,000 years after the fall, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He entered, the word had become alive. It wasn't just the writings of Exodus and Psalm and Isaiah. Jesus was the word living and walking and breathing among men. So that brings us to the during. During, in his ministry, in 1 Peter 1.20, it says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Peter said, He was foreordained, but he was manifest in this time for us. He came for the people for the he came to the people in the first century, but he also came for all prior centuries and all future centuries. In the last days of the earth, by the way, we're, uh, so First Peter one uh, twenty says, "In these last days for you." And some of you might say, "Hold on, if Peter said the last days two thousand years ago, what does that mean?" Well, think about it this way. The last days of the earth have been accelerated ever since the first coming of Jesus. There were about 4,000 years before his birth, but there's only been about 2,000 years after his birth. There's been an acceleration in the last 2,000 years that far exceed the four, first 4,000. This is even especially true in the last 200 years. The last 200 years have been hurtling even faster you know, there's a force, uh, there's a scientific vector when you actually reach a maximum speed and then you actually have a force multiplier to catapult it forward at an even faster speed. That's how they would launch the shuttles off a rocket. And in the last 200 years, there's been an acceleration, and especially an acceleration in the last 100 years of human history, and in another acceleration in the last 50, and in another, another acceleration in the last even 10 and 20 years. No one even knew what a smartphone was 15 years ago or whatever it was. Now it's common, everything. The world is Wi-Fi. People are, you know, doing what uh, we, we used to see them doing, the Jetsons, you know, right? <laughs> FaceTiming each other and all this other stuff. It's been an acceleration, which the prophet Daniel prophesied that this would come to place. People would move to and fro, and speed would accelerate, and the world would accelerate. And all this was true, by the way, in the coming of the life of Jesus. Say, what, how does that relate to the life of Jesus? Well, his life was a picture of the acceleration of the end as well. See, the world waited 4,000 years for the arrival of Jesus. That's a long wait, isn't it? It's twice as long as we've been since his first coming. The world waited 4,000 years. And then when he did arrive, the only people that even saw him arrive was a couple of shepherds and a few wise men. Nobody else even knew that the Messiah was on the earth. Then it waited 30 years for him to reveal himself as the Messiah and begin his, 30, begin his earthly ministry. So there was another 30-year wait, like, he's there, but when is he going to reveal himself as the pro proclaimed Messiah? Well, then in the very last week of his life, in his pre-risen life, that last Passover on earth that he would attend there was another rapid acceleration and revelation and completion of he himself as the Passover lamb when he was slain for sin. That last week is a lot written in the New Testament about. That last week. 
You see, the closing in around Jesus, the closing in around him intensified over the last few years of his life. That last three years of his life when he revealed, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, then there was a closing in on Jesus. There was no coordinated effort of mankind to kill Jesus through his teen years. There was no coordinated effort to kill Jesus in his adult years pre-announcing that he was the Messiah. Everyone was okay with Jesus until he began to walk out God's plan. They were okay when he was simply known as Jesus, the carpenter, the son of a carpenter, right? Everybody was okay with that. During those three years of calling people to repent and turn from their sins, uh, Jesus was healing the sick. He was giving sight to the blind. He was feeding the hungry. He was calming the storms. He was teaching. He was preaching. He was calling his disciples. He was naming them as apostles. Many lives were transformed, right? Thousands of lives were transformed. And yet at that same time, in that three-year period, as the acceleration was narrowing, as the gap was closing in on him, that Satan was bringing forth all the things that he would try and do to stop the plan of God, the hatred among the religious leaders, it was actually building. The hatred was building. It was like a pot boiling, getting hotter and hotter. And the final straw, do you know what the final straw was? When he raised Lazarus from the dead, they flipped out about this. We should rejoice when someone gets raised from the dead, but they didn't like it at all. And they were determined not only to re-kill Lazarus, but to kill Jesus at the same time. This, uh, they were determined that they couldn't delay any longer. This man who claims to have come from God, who claims to be equal to God, who claims to be the Son of God, who had fulfilled all that the prophets had written about, he must be killed. That was their verdict. Fulfilling every, and by the way, their verdict fulfilled prophecy. Right? Their very verdict was fulfilling prophecy that could only be about this one man, the Lamb of God. So there in Jerusalem, just as David had prophesied, the congregation of the wicked surrounds him, Passover week, just days after they're worshiping him. They surround him and they condemn the Lord of glory. And the Lamb of God was slain at the precise time that the Passover lamb was slain. Same exact time that afternoon. Passover lamb is slain, Jesus is slain. And by the way, we were, participate, we were participating in his death. Did you know that? Our sins were also putting him on the cross that day. We can't just point the finger at the people that, that put Jesus on the cross and say, yeah, if we'd have been there, we would have been so much better. Our sins put him on the cross too. We were active participants as well. We contributed to his suffering. We contributed to his death just as much as anyone else did. And what a horrible scene it was that day when all the force of evil had closed in. Turn with me just briefly to Matthew chapter 27. If we're handed a Bible, it should be marked. But Matthew chapter 27. Uh, this one I did want to put on the screen. I wanted you to see it on the page of Scripture with me. And it'll set us up for our last couple of minutes here. Matthew chapter 27. What a scene. Starting in verse 45. 
Now, Jesus, of course, he was put on the cross at 9 a.m. But at 12 noon, which is marked here as the sixth hour, verse 45, Matthew 27, verse 45, now from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Never in the history of the world has there been a moment like this. The skies turned dark. It was not an eclipse. If you know anything about eclipses, do not last for hours. They last for minutes. Do, say, I don't know if that's true. Go study it all you want. Did you just make that up? I'm going to Google it. Go ahead. <coughs> eclipses do not last for hours. There's no solar that lasts for hours. They only last for minutes. This was darkness for three hours. God himself darkened the skies. That should have been a massive message to everybody, right? We've done something horribly wrong. It it goes on, verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthaniah, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered him to drink. The rest yelled or said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. By the way, these kind of mockings were prophesied as well. Said it all that this would happen. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded his spirit. And you know what he said in other, the other gospel recording? He said these words, it is finished. Oh, aren't you glad he said those words? It is finished. And then, verse 51, behold, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It would take a team of oxen to rip a veil like this, but the Holy Spirit just went, ripped the veil right down, and the Holy of Holies became open to all those that have faith in Jesus Christ, not just the high priest. We've all been made kings and priests if we've been saved, the Bible says. The veil was, and then the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Verse 52 is actually telling us something that happens the following few days, but the way that Matthew writes it He's just letting you know that the, the origin was the death of Jesus. But look at verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the grave after his resurrection. In other words, this part didn't happen right then. He says that, hey, that earthquake was actually just kind of like waking the bodies up for the next couple of days. And all of a sudden, when Jesus rose, they came forth as well, which was a foreshadowing that many will someday be part of the resurrection of Jesus. And so when the centurion, verse 54, and those who were with him guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly. Smart Roman soldier, by the way. Truly, this was the Son of God. Roman soldiers were all about evidence. They're like, we've been in a lot of battles. We've crucified a lot of people. Never have we seen the skies go dark. Never have we seen all of a sudden the earthquake. Never have we seen a man die with this kind of power, strength, and dignity. Something's different. You people around him, you might be mocking him, but we think we, this is the real guy. And of course he was. He was going to reveal it even more a few days later. For that one moment of time, though, Satan appeared to have won, didn't he? For that moment of time, boy, Satan and the demon world was, was having a blast that day. Jesus was dead. For that one moment of time, he appeared to have won. Evil, of, evil appeared to have defeated goodness and kindness and gentleness. The character and righteousness of Christ was put to death with a cruelty and a hatred that defied logic. It defied logic to brutally torture 
such a kind, loving man. Made no sense. But this was the depths of sin and wickedness. Satan appeared to, pull, appeared to have pulled off what he had desired all along, was that was to dethrone God. He, for a moment, it looked like. You've seen the movie, like, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan dies. Very sad, that moment. It looks like it's over, but it's not over yet. The victory had been secured before the foundation of the world, and it would be reconfirmed 100% certainty with Jesus conquering the grave. And by the way, it was confirmed when Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, thy will be done. You know what you and I would have said? My will be done. He said, thy will be done. Oh, how we needed the cross. The world needed the cross. Yes, it was barbaric. Yes, it was horrific. Yes, it was sad. But if Jesus didn't go to the cross and do what only he could do, we have no hope. There's no hope without the cross. Even then, with his final breath, we see the power of sin and darkness being shaken by the darkness of the sky and the earth quaking. Even then, God was revealing his power. Even there on the cross, it was a foreshadow of the future victory. Centuries ago, this is by Kenneth Osbeck, and it's from 101 Hymn Stories. So centuries ago, on the south coast of China, High up on a hill overlooking the harbor of Macau, Portuguese settlers built an enormous cathedral. They believed it would weather time, and they placed it upon the front wall of this cathedral, and a massive bronze cross and God's fingerwork. Um, I'm sorry, the massive bronze cross that stood high into the sky. So they had this huge bronze cross there. And not many years later, a typhoon came, and the finger work of God swept away man's handiwork, except for the front wall and the bronze cross that stood high. Centuries later, there was a shipwreck out a little beyond that harbor, and some died and a few lived. One of the men that was hanging onto wreckage in the sea was moving up and down with the crest of the waves as the ocean would swell roaring and roving back and forth, and he was disoriented, he was frightened, he didn't know where land was. And as he would come up on the crest of a swell, he'd spot that bronze cross. True story. And it was tiny from a distance, and his name was Sir John Bowring. And when he made it to land and lived to tell the story, he wrote these words. And the cross of Jesus... And the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round its head sublime. And the last stanza, he says, When the woes of life o'ertake me, hopes deceive and fears annoy, never shall the cross forsake me. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. And the reality of what he experienced, a bronze cross is not what we look to, but an empty cross is what we look to. And we might be drowning in some other kind of sea, but we'd still be drowning if we couldn't see the cross, and it would lead us to safety. Which brings us to the final thing, after. Aren't you glad there's an after? If everything ends on that Friday, I have no reason to be here today, folks. And you don't either. 
This brings us to the glorious end of our story of salvation. The part even the disciples, they couldn't even believe it until their spiritual eyes wrote. Remember, they looked in the tomb. First, they didn't believe Mary. It couldn't happen. You got to think about the disciples. They believed in the prophecies, right? They believed in Jesus' ministry so much that they followed him three years. If you follow someone around for three years, you pretty much believe in what they're doing, right? They believed in his ministry. They believed in the prophecies. They believed in his miracles. They believed they were sinners needing salvation. They believed that. They believed that Jesus had died a few days earlier. They saw him die. They believed he was dead. And remember, they had seen others raised from the dead. Not just Lazarus. Jesus raised a few others as well, recorded in Scripture. And yet they couldn't believe he was alive. I know he raised some people, but there's no way he could raise himself. But he was alive. And he is alive. He was and he is. During the ministry of Jesus, he said exactly how this whole thing would end. Tragic, but then triumph three days later. Mark 8.31, listen to the words of Jesus. This is before he ever went to the cross, before that Passover week. And he said, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and three days later rise again. He told them exactly how this would go. You know what this story, every, every time he told them how the story would end, in this ear, out the other. They couldn't comprehend it. But the final chapter was revealed with his resurrection. The prophecies, they were essential. Passover week was essential. The cross and all of its suffering was essential. But without the resurrection, and Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, there's no salvation. Does everyone understand this? With there's no resurrection, the cross and the blood of the cross don't satisfy the penalty for sin. Praise God that Jesus has the power to keep his word. If Jesus had not kept his word, he would be a liar. But he's not a liar. He said, I'll go, I'll die, and I'll rise again. And he is the only one that has the power to lay his life down, to raise it up, to keep his word because he's king of kings and he's lord of all. He has power over everything. His authority over sin and death is his alone. No other religious leader in all the history of the world has ever been able to extend their life for a single second. Right? No other religious leader, Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, they couldn't extend their life for a second, much less raise it. We're talking about a whole different level here. Because this is the God-man. Death and the cross had to happen. He had to enter death to defeat death. <coughs> Why all that was the case with the, with the Father? We'll find out when we meet him face to face. I don't even understand why God had laid it out the way he did, but this is his story, and he's the one that authors it. But the resurrection was the final piece. The cross was the written check. The resurrection was the sufficient funds to clear that check. The cross was the written check. The resurrection was the sufficient funds. S. Lewis Johnson said, The resurrection is God's amen to Christ's statement, it is finished. Isn't that great? The resurrection is God's amen to Jesus' it is finished.
The completion of the story had been written well before time. And it's the completion of our salvation. It's a finished work. What an ending. What a 180 from despair to rejoicing. But the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, I know who you seek. Jesus who was crucified, he's not here, he is risen. He's risen. The angel said, just as he said, he's risen. Understand that Jesus died and rose to fulfill the will of God to complete the story of grace. But he did it for who? For you and for me. And he did it because God so loves this fallen world and our, our sin-bound souls. And in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, it said, who was delivered because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. The story is true. The story is real. The story will outlast this earth and this universe. The story is glorious. The story is the gospel, which means good news. The story was 100% fulfilled by Jesus. We're coming to a close right here. But let, I want you to understand, this really is the greatest story ever fulfilled. This really is the greatest story ever fulfilled. And you might say, so why do so many ignore it then? Well, our nature, our human nature is fascinated with the trivial and the unimportant. It's part of our sin nature. We are fascinated by the trivial and the temporal, but God has to open our eyes and open our hearts to the essential and the eternal. Let me say that one more time. Our sin nature is fascinated, gravitates to the completely trivial and temporal. That's why people can spend hours on social media, but they can't read two verses. And they can look up and say, what, where'd half the night go. We are, we are drawn to things that don't matter, and God has to open our eyes to the things that actually matter, that are eternal, that are essential. There's one more thing about this story, though. God desires you and me to be a part of it. He desires you and me to be a part of this story. You see, God sits outside of time, and we, when we say yes to Jesus, who said he was the way, the truth, and the life. We're written into this story, and our name's written into the Lamb's, Lamb's book of life. There it is again. We're written into this story as those raised with him, just like those that came up after the grave after. They were a foreshadow of all those who would later be raised in Christ as part of that final resurrection that his salvation gives. That's the resurrection that's coming at the end of the age. If you've already come to Jesus, you've been written, in, written into this story of redemption. You've been written in. You've been grafted in, as the scriptures say. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life, not the king's book of life, because you didn't need a king for salvation. You get a king to worship for all eternity, but you need a lamb for salvation. Do you see the difference? It's not called the king's book of salvation, the king's book of life. It's the Lamb's book of life. The blood is what brought us in. The king is who will worship. If you've already come, great. Celebrate today and keep sharing this story with other people for as long as you're alive. If not, I hope you hear the call of the Lord. 
Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Let's close in prayer.